Good evening, TDN Radio listeners, and it is 8 p.m. September 24th, 2014. Welcome to This Week in Interview. I am your host, Anthony Drago, and um, as usual, on a Wednesday night at 8 p.m., we have conversations. We do This Week in Interview with persons of interest, persons who have interesting experiences to share, either in their work or their personal lives. And so we do this every Wednesday, and I'm very happy that you come back every Wednesday to join us. So this week is our monthly installment, our health installment, our monthly health installment. So we're going to have a, a, a health program this week. We'll be joined shortly um, on the line by our in-house um, healthcare professional, Nurse Rosalind Carbon. Um, and Nurse Rosalind Carbon will be having a conversation with a, a doctor, specialist doctor. And of course, when she comes online, she's going to tell you all about who's the exciting guest that we're going to be interviewing this Wednesday. So um, she's going to join us shortly. But as usual, as I do nowadays, I like to play, I like to start my show with the CARICOM anthem because it is my anthem nowadays. I am really, really um, pushing. I want to get all my listeners to um, get on board with this one Caribbean train. Um, and I'm hoping that um, during the winter months we can do some exciting stuff. We can get some education going in terms of why it would be advantageous to have one Caribbean nation instead of 12 different countries. But that's a topic for another day. As we said, um, tonight is our health installment on this week in interview. And we will be joined shortly on the line by Ms. Rosalind Carbon. Uh, I welcome you to the show. We do this every Wednesday night on tdnradio.net. We do an interview with interesting persons. We try to bring you conversations that we hope can spur you into action. And, and we thought that it was very important that you... Um, be involved in the management of your health. And so we decided that we we're going to do a health installment every month. And this, um, this Wednesday is no exception. Uh, we, will be, we will be joined on the line very shortly by our healthcare professional, Ms. Rosalind Carbon. And she will have all this exciting news about the special guest that we will have on the show this evening. But um, while we wait for her to call in, let me tell you, about this event that's happening on September 27th. There is, well, you know, once we once we start going into later out of September, all the way through the first week of November is the celebration of Dominica's independence. And, and so a lot of the organizations around the U.S., especially in the New York tri-state area, has activities to, to mark that. And on the 27th of September, there is a cultural gala um, I guess what it is is a lot of what it is is a lot of um, different presentations, cultural presentations by some of the various groups. Um, it is sponsored by Dumpkin Development and Juliana's Classic Dishes, and it's going to take place in New Jersey at the Women's Club of Upper Montclair, 200 Cooper Avenue, Upper Montclair. Uh, so there is, a, there is the Dominica Cultural Awards Gala. 
Um, if you want more information, there's a few numbers on here. I can give you a, a couple of them. Hiram David at um, 732-423-2550. Now, um, we have on the line, uh, we're going to be joined on the line by Ms. Rosalind Carbon. So let's, let's go directly to the phone. Um, Ms. Carbon, good evening. Good evening, Tony. How are you? Well, I am fine. I am fine. It's, it's exciting to have you on board as usual. Um, and I know um, this week is no exception. We're going to have a very exciting conversation with a, with a specialist. Uh, for those of you who are listening for the first time, Anders Rosalind Carbon is our in-house healthcare professional, and she brings to us very, very relevant and timely information that the objective is to help us to become more proactive in the management of our healthcare. So, um, Ms. Carbon, welcome back to this weekend interview. Uh, we had a very exciting conversation last month, um, but I am going to turn the mic over to you so you can um, say goodnight to the guests and, and you can you can also to listeners and also introduce and give a little information about who is going to be our guest this evening. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tony. Uh, well, I'm Rosalind Carbon. Um, I've been a nurse for many, many years, 30 plus, which I thoroughly enjoy. Um, and um, in so doing, I enjoy sharing the knowledge that I've come across over the years, learned, um, obtained it through experience. And um, I like sharing this information because a lot of it, like Tony said, we need people to be proactive. We need people to be educated consumers, and by giving some very, even minimal basic information, it's amazing how much it can help you navigate through the medical um, system and therefore give yourself a better chance in receiving better care, optimum care for yourself. Well, tonight we have Dr. Margaret Bryan. She's a hematologist, oncologist at University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey, I've known her for many years, and when she comes on the line, she will elaborate more on herself. However, she's a wonderful, well-liked, loved, looked upon, very a wealth of knowledge. Um, whenever I come across her patients, they have nothing but wonderful things to say about her. And um, it's going to be a great pleasure and a great honor to have her give us and spare us some of her time and um, share her knowledge with us. And the discussion again tonight, being sickle cell month, and she being a hematologist, we're going to touch base on a disease called sickle cell anemia, which a lot of people think it's an African or a black people's disease. But as we listen to the program, we'll understand. I'm sure Dr. Brian will elaborate and let us know. No, it's not just subjected to black people or African people. So that's... Um, where we're going with that. And we also want to touch base on the treatments of cancer. She's an oncologist. Um, Rosalind, can you hold on? There's a call coming in, and I think it's Dr. Is Dr. Brian. Hold on one second, yes. please. Okay. Hello, good evening, Hello. caller. Is it Dr. Brian? Yes, it is. Hi, Dr. Brian. Welcome to the show. Um, let me, let me, Rosalind is on the line, but uh, before we, I hand you over to her, I want to say how grateful I am, and I speak on behalf of our many listeners that you, took, that you took the time to um, to be with us this evening. So welcome to this weekend interview, Dr. Brian. 
Thank you. Thank you. And Rosalind is on the line as well. Hi, Dr. Brian. Good evening. Welcome and thank you again for joining us on this conversation um, tonight. My pleasure. Thank you. So I just want to say in conclusion to what I was saying a couple of seconds ago, I would advise the listeners tonight to please have a pen and paper because I think you're going to get some information tonight that you'd like to jot down in a, you know, somewhere because there's going to be a lot of information that would be very handy. Um, Dr. Brian, again, welcome to tonight's an, an interview, and I'd like you to tell our listeners a little about yourself. Okay, my name is Margaret Bryan. I'm originally from Jamaica. I went to medical school at the University of the West Indies in Kingston, Jamaica. And then I migrated to the U.S. and I did uh, medicine, in internal medicine residency down in Washington, D.C. And then I did a fellowship in hematology, which is a study of blood diseases, and oncology, which is a study of cancers at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey in Newark, New Jersey. So I've been there for over 20 years now, and most of my focus is really on oncology, which is cancer. But about 25, 30% of my practice is hematology, and I do have a lot of patients with sickle cell diseases and various other blood problems. And this month, September, is Sickle Cell Awareness Month. So I think um, what Rosin asked me to do was to focus my talk more on sickle cell diseases and a little bit on some other variations of sickle cell disease. Yes. Very well said. And um, again, thank you. And to start the interview of Dr. Brian, I'd really like you to explain to our audience um, what is the definition of sickle cell? What exactly is sickle cell? Well, sickle cell anemia is an inherited blood disorder where the body is not making enough healthy red blood cells to carry oxygen to the tissues. Normally, our red blood cells have what a protein inside of it called hemoglobin. And the function of this is to take oxygen to all of the tissues in the body. So the red cells function to carry the oxygen, which is the food of the tissues. And basically what happens in sickle cell anemia is that the cells are abnormal. It's really a, a genetic problem that brought this on. And the cells form a sickle or a crescent shape, and they block up the smaller blood vessels so that the oxygen cannot get to the tissues especially the tissues that are further away from the heart when the blood vessels become very small. So these blood cells can no longer get into what we call the microcirculation. Normally red blood cells are like a donut shape without the hole, and they can deform themselves into smaller structures because some of the small blood vessels are so tiny that the red blood cell is larger than the diameter of these small blood vessels. But what the blood, the normal, healthy red blood cell has, the feature, is that it can bend itself into various shapes. And then it can slither through the small blood vessels and get the oxygen to the tissues. Because without oxygen, we will not survive. So it's very important. And what happens in sickle cell, because of an abnormal protein that these patients have, 
the cells do not have that what we call deformability anymore. The cells can't bend and slither through the small blood vessels. The cells become a sickle shape or a crescent shape. And when they get to the small blood vessels, they block off the blood, 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 the oxygen to the tissues because they get jammed up in these small blood vessels. And then the tissue that is further away from that small blood vessel starts dying, which we call, we call that infarction, which is the tissue is dying. And that becomes extremely painful for the patient. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and as far as painful, we'll talk about that a, a couple minutes down the road. But something as far as what? What was that? You mentioned how how painful oh, yes, the blockages yes. of these malformed cells in yes, areas that nobody can cause. So we'll talk about that in a couple minutes, the pain and the management of it. But yes. There is also talk of sickle cell being originated from Africa and related to malaria. Just give us a little insight into that theory. Well, basically, what we need to do, we need to have a little understanding of our um, genetic makeup, our, basically of the blueprint that tells our bodies what instructions it gives to the body as to what all the different substances your body is going to need is, is supplied by the genes. And the genes reside in the DNA, which is the master blueprint of the body. What happens over thousands of years that malaria has been a scourge, mainly in the African continent, but it was a worldwide problem many, many years ago. All of us make mistakes when, we are, when our genes are being made. We, the mistakes are made. And if the mistakes are big enough, then the baby doesn't survive. Say, say we're talking a baby now. So there are mistakes, alterations being made all the time. All of us get half of our DNA from each parent. That is how we come about. But we are never an exact replica of the two parents combined. There's always a little bit of difference. So those are what we call alterations, spontaneous alterations. And not, most of them have no real significance but a few of them can be really devastating many times. So these alterations that we have in our genetic makeup are called mutations many times when, when they are not the normal, fully normal picture. What happens back in thousands of years ago, malaria was killing off the people, mainly in Africa and some parts of the Mediterranean also, where we have another condition called thalassemia. So what happens, some mutation took place in the gene many, many, many thousands of years ago. And what was discovered was that the patients who had part of the mutation were surviving. This has been studied for many, many years now. The patients who got full-blown malaria, in other words, we get hemoglobin A from each patient. A is normal. The patients who got, people who got A from each, each parent died of malaria. If the parent, if the sickle cell gene was present in one of the parents, say for example, and the, the child got that, somehow they saw that these children were protected from the malaria. What happens? The malaria parasite inside of the red cell that has some of the sickle hemoglobin cannot survive as well as it does in the normal person. 
So the people who had the sickle cell trait were surviving. I'll tell you what sickle cell trait is shortly. That is just half of the sickle cell um, problem. They were surviving, and somehow, by natural selection over the years, you're going to have a sickle cell trait patient partnering with another sickle cell trait patient, and that's how the disease comes about. So the patient who has the full-blown sickle cell disease were dying of sickle cell, the patient who had normal hemoglobin A, which is a healthy hemoglobin, were dying of malaria. So a lot of the traits were surviving. So over the years, that was the explanation. Because if you look on, for example, the map of Africa where the malaria belt is, they found out that the origins of sickle cell came about in those same areas. So that's how this, they discovered that somehow sickle cell was protecting these people from the malaria, and they were surviving more so than the healthy person or, or the person who has the full-blown sickle cell disease. Similarly, in the Mediterranean also, they have another condition called thalassemia where the people were surviving who had part of the genetic defect because somehow they had a protective effect from the malaria parasite, which was a scourge on the population back in those days. Very interesting. Thank you for that explanation. Tony, yeah. would you like to talk to Dr. Brian at this point? No, uh, uh, actually, the letter, Dr. Brian, you can go ahead because uh, it's, it's useful information. Um, I will have questions, but I'll reserve them for, for later in the program. Okay. Yeah, Ron wanted me to mention another condition called thalassemia. So in, in sickle cell anemia, what we have is actually a mutation. So we have a defective gene. And that produces an abnormal protein. So that's why the, the cells form this sickle shape. They become very sticky and they don't flow as freely in the blood vessels. Now she asked me to mention another condition called thalassemia, which is also very common in the black population. I should mention that sickle cell is not only seen in blacks. Sickle cell is seen in people from India, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, of course, the Caribbean, most of us who came from the slave trade in Africa and stuff like that, but also um, parts of um, Central and South America, they see sickle cell disease also. Very, very, very rarely do we see it in the white person, but it is said that about one in, one in 500 African Americans in this country have some variation of sickle cell disease, and about one in 1,400 of Hispanics have some variation of sickle cell disease. So we do see it quite fairly frequently in Hispanics also. But the thalassemia that I want to mention also is basically it's not so much a defective or a mutated gene that we have here, but the hemoglobin molecule itself is deficient. And what this causes is that the cells don't survive as long. So these patients have anemia most of the time. So they have many symptoms of anemia. And if you... If you have enough decrease in this hemoglobin molecule, remember the hemoglobin molecule is the one carrying the oxygen to the tissues. If you don't have enough of that, then the patients may die if it is a severe. There are many variations of thalassemia. It's a spectrum of diseases. So many of us blacks actually have a variation of thalassemia right now circulating in us. 
but we have no symptoms from it because it is very mild. But there are some people with thalassemia that is so severe that they're born, they um, die, die in the womb, actually. Um, variations of thalassemia. But getting back to sickle cell, let me tell you a little bit more about sickle cell, what happens in these conditions here now. Because it's quite common among our black patients especially. In Jamaica, we saw a lot of that at the university hospital. But it's all over the Caribbean. It's what we call SS disease. Normal hemoglobin is AA, which you're getting A from each parent. When you have SS disease, that is full-blown sickle cell disease. And it is possible to have the S, which is a, a mutated gene, and you could have a deficiency of the hemoglobin also in the same patient, so that patient would have sickle thalassemia. So you can have a combination of both conditions. And depending on how dis deficient they are in the thalassemic arm, the, the protein, they can have very severe disease, as severe as the SS disease. There's also another variation called hemoglobin C, which is very common in certain parts of Africa also. And all of these mutated genetic defects were really a protective, spontaneous mutation that took place many, many years ago to protect us from malaria, to protect the population from malaria. But so sickle cell disease has been known in Africa, but it wasn't called that for thousands of years. The first description of sickle cell disease in the Western civilization was actually in 1910 when a physician in Chicago was working with a dental student from the Caribbean. I think he was from Dominica also. And right. he was anemic, and they were looking at his blood under the microscope and they saw these crescent-shaped cells, and that was the first description of sickle cell anemia in this part of the world. And would you believe that from the 1950s, they have known the genetic defect. It's the first disease where the genetic defect has been known. The molecular basis is known since the 1950s, and we still haven't gotten any further along with curing it. So... Depends on which other conversation on its own. That's another conversation on its own. Mm -hmm. But it is the most common genetic defect identified as part of the newborn screening program that they have in the USA. So it's pretty common out there compared to other genetic defects. But um, it's not as well studied. More and more people are focusing on it because um, our sickle cell population is living, most of them used to die as children in the olden days, but they're living much longer now, so they are being studied more, and we are really having an impact on their quality of life, which is most important. Now, what happens with these sickle cells when they block up the small blood vessels? The problem is that we don't get the oxygen to the tissues, and they have multiple complications from this problem. So I don't know if you want me to do that now, Ross, or if there's something else somebody wants to ask me before I go on with what problems these patients have. Um, I'm just wondering if Tony wants to do anything because I, you go, you're following the conversation the way I would have liked it to go. Okay. So, I, I should tell you a little bit about the trait because 
a lot of us are walking around with sickle cell traits and we do not even know that we have the condition because you don't get any medical problems with sickle cell traits. Very, very rarely a sickle cell trait patient may have some blood in the urine because sometimes they because the oxygen tension in the kidneys can get low sometimes that they can damage some of the kidney tissue and they get some blood in the urine. But most of the time, sickle cell trait patients do not know that they have the trait until they have a partner and have a child and the child turns out to have sickle cell disease. That is how many of the sickle cell trait patients are discovered. So it's a condition that people have that they don't know that they have until that happens. Nowadays, we are discovering some people with sickle cell trait who thought they were normal, and they're getting into trouble because of vigorous physical activity. So, for example, some of these um, football players who um, have sickle cell trait and don't know that they have it, some of them go out there on the sports field and they're working out so hard that you've had some sudden deaths in some of these patients because of some car heart problems and stuff like that. Also, some of them have been discovered when they start training to get into the army. So sickle cell trait is a silent problem that cause, that, that people are not aware that they have until they come upon having a child with somebody who has the trait. Because like I said, it's fairly common. It's said in some, some of the blacks in the U.S. here, up to 10% of people may have sickle cell trait and don't even know that they have it. And thalassemia is probably even more common. But it's a very mild form of thalassemia that is out there. So most of us, you go around, um, people tell you you have a little bit of anemia and stuff like that, and people live with that for years and years without any problems, and nobody works it up. It's a little expensive to work up thalassemia. But you go around, everybody say, oh, our doctor say I've been anemic since I was a child and stuff like that, and you just accept it as the norm and then you move on because you really don't have much symptoms. So that's that's one of the issues with this. Until you have a child with somebody who also has it and then the child may come down with major problems and then you realize that you have a problem too, even though it was not bothering you. So that's the problem with, with the thing with sickle cell trait. No symptoms most of the time. So and and we have really some sickle cell trait patients who are looking seeking narcotics sometimes and looking for medicines, but they generally do not get the pain. They can get some pain when they go on high altitude also, but generally to diagnose sickle cell anemia and sickle trait and so forth, it's really a simple blood test that is done. And what they do, they, they, first they look at the blood cells under the microscope. If you have somebody with full-blown sickle cell disease, you will see sickle cells. And because they're breaking down the cells, we see young cells on, this, on the um, microscope also. But there's a protein, what is called a, um, electrophoresis, hemoglobin electrophoresis, where they put the, 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 the blood on a little slide like, and then they put it with various um, charges to see how fast the protein is going to move on the slide. And the, because they can line it up with what is already known, they are able to diagnose different types of sickle cell disease. Okay? Yes, yes. So are there any screening measures in place from a newborn or only if there's two parents with the trait that no, you can screen in the family? How do, is there any screening process? In the U.S. actually has a policy 
where all newborns are screened for sickle cell disease now. Excellent. Yeah, because it, it is important to know this. And it, actually, it's, um, the sickle cell can be diagnosed in the womb also, very, very early in the womb, because there are some women who, um, who are desperate to get the diagnosis because some people will actually terminate the pregnancy if they know that they're having a child with sickle cell anemia. So that does happen sometimes. Yes. If they can do um, early diagnosis um, from in the womb, so... That's something that can be done. But it's a simple blood test, basically. And um, most labs do that, so it's not difficult to find out if the patient or the baby has sickle cell, sickle cell disease or sickle trait or whatever. Mm -hmm. Rose, can I, can I ask a question real quick? Sure. Uh, sure. Dr. Brian, as we talk about people having the trait, um, does it mean that if two people get together and they both have the trait, is it automatic that they that their, their offspring will have sickle cell, or is it, is it not always that way? Very good question. Okay. Say you have, you inherit hemoglobin. A is the healthy, healthy hemoglobin, all right? If your mother has hemoglobin A and hemoglobin S, we say she has AS, right? Right. She, she has the trait. It's AS. A is the normal and S is, is the half. So half of her blood has sickle trait in there. Right? The right. Fa your father has AS because he has sickle trait also. Normal, you get A from one parent and A from the other parent. So you're AA. Normal person. The, the person with sickle trait has half A and half S. You follow me so yes. far? Yes, I do. Uh -huh. All right. So your mother has half A and half S. Your father has far half A and half S. Your mother's A can link up with your father's A. So you can have a normal child. A, because you're getting A from your father and A from your mother. That's normal. Right. You can get A from your mother and S from your father. So you come with the trait. Right. Or you, or you can get... S from your father and A from your mother, you have the trait again. Or you can get S from your mother and S from your father, so you have the disease. Mm -hmm. So there is a one in four chance. If both your parents have the trait, there's a one in four chance that the child can come down with sickle cell anemia. You follow that? I do. I follow that. So, yes. So, so, so what we're saying is that it's important for persons to know Especially persons who are thinking of having kids. Know first of all if you have the trait. Yes. Okay, and and then you know the chances of of the importance of the of of knowing what your offspring is going to have. Like you said, the test can be done even in the womb. Yeah, but with every offspring, there's a one in four chance. Right. So you. You could be unlucky that your first and your second child have sickle cell disease, your third child has normal hemoglobin, and your fourth child has hemoglobin sickle trait. Right. But, but this, is, this is very important. The reason why, because I'm getting so much information tonight, because before tonight, I was with the impression that if two people have the traits, their offsprings automatically have sickle cell, and I think that's a very common belief. So no, that, that is why I wanted to to you to emphasize exactly um, that is it's only a one in four chance that if yes. both parents have the trait that the child will have sickle cell. Right, 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 right. 
So for the unfortunate people, they may have three kids and the three of them may have the trait. Yeah. Or, or may, have, may yeah. have the disease. May have the disease. Definitely. Okay. All right, Rosie, go ahead. Yeah. So Dr. Bryan, over the years, I took care of a lot of six, um, patients with sickle cell anemia, sickle cell disease. And one of the major issues for them was pain. And the management, I took care of these patients maybe 15 years ago. I have not taken care of them since, or maybe 20 years ago. And at that time, there was Demerol, 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 IV fluid. What seems to be the approach for managing care, apart from the fact that everybody's pain is acknowledged, it's not our job to decide whether this person is really in pain or not, because as a nurse, we've seen where patients would be on the buzzer for pain, and you're looking at them, Two seconds ago, having a meal, laughing and joking, and when it's time for the pain medication, they're pushing that button. And people, nurses, doctors, will be very annoyed with them. You were happy. You were fine. All of, all of a sudden, you need pain medication. We're in a new era now where that doesn't matter if the patient says they're in pain. Granted, their vital signs are okay, and they're not going, you know, going into some issues. They're supposed to be taken seriously, assessed, and medicated accordingly. My question to you is, what's the style of treatment or what's the approach to the pain of the patients with sickle cell these days? Maybe um, what I can do is tell you about something about their pain for starters, okay? Yes, please. That is one of the most significant problems we have with sickle cell patients. Pain. Pain, really pain crises, and they do suffer a lot. Yes. Yes. So the, the dogma these days is that if the patient says they are in pain, you have to accept it. They are in pain. Even though we look on them and we know that every three hours their fingers are on the buzzer calling for their pain medicine, if they are in pain. The problem with many of these patients, there are a few bad eggs out there, quite frankly, Ros, and we know some of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And they will want to demand all sorts of things. But the problem with these sickle cell patients, if you think of a child with sickle cell anemia, we have different, back, backtracking a little bit, we have different hemoglobins that are formed throughout our life. For example, in the uterus, we have what is called fetal hemoglobin, which is the hemoglobin of the fetus. And when we become, when, we, when um, the, the infant now, when you get to be six months, the hemoglobin switches and starts forming adult hemoglobin, the AA. So the fetal hemoglobin protects them somewhat. But once you get to six months of age and the adult hemoglobin starts forming in these sickle cell babies, they start suffering. They have a condition called hand-foot syndrome where the six-month-old baby comes to the emergency room. The hands are completely swollen, hot and tender, and the baby is screaming. And that's when they know that the baby has sickle cell disease. So after six months, a lot of the problems with pain start coming in. Remember, if you ever consider somebody puts a blood pressure cuff on your arm and pumps it up and leaves it on there a little too long, what kind of pain you have. Mm -hmm. That's the pain that some of them are feeling because the pain is because you're not getting the oxygen to the tissues. Or if you do a very vigorous workout and you never exercise from you were born and you see that kind of pain you have, that's the problem with these sickle cell patients. They have 
severe pain because they're not getting the oxygen to the tissue because these crescent-shaped cells are blocking up these blood vessels. So consider that kind of a pain, how long you could tolerate it. I have a sickle cell patient who is actually a physician who fractured her hip and stayed home overnight with it because it was not that bad because she is in constant pain. So you have to realize that these patients, from their little children coming up, and their mother, parents keep rushing them to the emergency room in pain, in pain. The problem with them is that we are poor black folks, and after a while, people just started living with the pain. They got accustomed to the pain. So even though they are having severe pain, if we were to have that kind of pain, we would be screaming our heads off. So we have got to believe them that they're really having the pain, for starters, and give them that pain medicine. And if they're demanding it every three hours, then maybe we are not giving them enough pain medicine. About 10 years ago, the doctors realized that we need to start treating sickle cell pain like we treat cancer pain. Because the pain is probably worse many times in these sickle cell patients. So we have to address the pain situation. The problem is what I find with a lot of my sicklers, for example, is that they come, they come every month, they need their pain medicines, and they may spend two weeks in the hospital, and they tell you, I don't have any pain medicines left. And you say, but you were in the hospital for two weeks getting intravenous medication. Why do you not have any medicines left? And I gave you a month supplier um, last month. And they claim forever that they don't have any pain medicines left. What a lot of them are really doing is hoarding their medication because they remember as children that they were being denied these medications because not so long ago people were not giving them the strong pain medicines. Now we give them morphine and all the narcotics that we give to cancer pain patients because we know they are suffering with the pain. So we beg the nurses, even though the patient looks comfortable there, it's because they have been used to living with chronic pain. So give them their pain medicine. And if they're calling for it every three hours, then maybe we need to bump up the dose or give them something long-acting or something like that to try and relieve some of their pain. So many of them have a lot of psychological problems also. So they are... They are really not, and a lot of them, the problem with sickle cell patients also is that they get a lot of mini strokes sometimes. So their memory is poor, their judgment is poor, but we do have some that are really bad eggs, and they they really set a a bad precedence for the majority of sicklers who are genuinely suffering. So believe them. We have to believe them when they say they're having pain and try to address their pain issues. Maybe they need a psychiatrist with some counseling or something additive, but the pain is really severe in these patients, and we need to address it. We are not doing that well with the pain management, quite frankly, but we do have some what we call frequent flyers. They are in the clinic all the time. They are in the hospital all the time, and they demand these medicines all the time. So, But the majority of sicklers are good people. And um, I cannot appreciate I can appreciate the psychological effects, and maybe that's why the frequent flyers with yes. these um, demanding behaviors that's yes. the psychological behavior manifesting itself that way. 
Uh-huh. That's what I would imagine is going on with these people. Now, when you talk about the pain and how it's been treated with morphine now, that's answering my question precisely. It seems like we've done better, not enough, but it's much better than before when it was just the Demerol, the Demerol, IV fluids. Now, to be given the morphine more regularly and whatever narcotics is required, I'm pleased to hear that. Like I said, it's a long time since I took care of um, patients. I yeah. read it, yes, but to know that that's what's actually happening, it's very refreshing to me. And another thing, when it comes to psychological issues, when you look at a patient who has sickle cell disease, Dr. Brian, their body structure is different. They're somewhat stunted in growth, yes. not, um, somewhat on the extremely skinny side, for want of a better word. Um, sometimes their joints are deformed. So as a child, and another thing, you miss a lot of school. So talk about psychological issues, very much so. I would imagine it's at the top of the list because body image, you're a 13, 14-year-old young man or young girl, and you're looking like you're 10, and your legs are getting crooked, your dentition, your teeth are not all in order. You're, you don't have a lot of friends because you're not in school long enough to make friends or lasting friends. It takes its toll psychologically and emotionally on, on the ch- young people. It does, it does, because many of them cannot go to school on a daily basis because they are so sick all the time. They are in pain. One other complication that they get is infections all the time. So they're in the hospital with pneumonias. Of course, we have a better handle on managing that now, but they are very deformed many times. They are, they are, they are immature many times. They don't develop as well because of the complications with the because the tissues to the bones, the bones die, the muscles die sometimes, depending on what where the sickling is taking place. Another problem that they have is leg ulcers. They have these ulcers near their ankle, and they. I have some patients with ulcers that are deep and draining, and they last for years and years and years with these patients. So that's very embarrassing for them also. Yes. They, they really don't heal. Sometimes we have to get them into what is called the hyperbaric chamber to try and give the tissue some oxygen to, to try and help with healing. Yes. So they have these many, many problems, and they do get strokes. Sickle cell patients, you may find an 11-year-old girl, we used to see that often in the university in Jamaica, coming in with a stroke. That is because of sickling in the brain. So the brain tissue is dying also. So their memories are poor. They, 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 and another issue that they have to, they, they, I mean, they, they, they haven't had the schooling. Their memories are poor. And what I find is with a lot of my sicklers who have parents involved in their care, the parents are super protective, which you can understand. And the parents also feel very guilty that they gave the, the child this disease, you know? Yes. They are coming with this additional baggage here, the parents' guilt coming on them. So it's, it's a very, very difficult situation to manage. And they have so many problems as it is already. And then when they come to the hospital and the nurse doesn't believe that they are in pain, it's, it's <laughs> another, yes. another um, traumatic event for them, especially for those who do not normally cry in pain or something like that, you know. And then sometimes they turn to street drugs. Yes, yes. And we, and we, they come to us for help, and now you're scorning them 
and yeah. you know, and denying them and disbelieving their pain. It's like for real, this is a curse on me. So yes. moving along, Doctor Brian, what do you? What's the prognosis and life expectancy for the patients in sickle cell disease with sickle cell disease? Well, it's much better these days because of things that have been developed over the years. For example, the, the, um, the vaccinations that they get, we immunize them against various diseases, especially pneumonia, because a lot of them used to die of pneumonia in the past. Mm-hmm. We have much better antibiotics for them. There are blood transfusions. The problem with blood transfusion many times is that you um, they can get iron overloaded, and that in itself is another um, killer in itself. Yes. And um, there's a drug called hydroxyurea, which is approved for sickle cell patients, which what it does, I mean, the exact mechanism of hydroxyurea is not quite known, but what it really does, it seems to turn on back the fetal hemoglobin, the hemoglobin that was produced in the fetus. Somehow it cuts into one of the enzymes that make um, the hemoglobin and turn that back on so that they stop making so much of the hemoglobin S and they start making more hemoglobin that was present when they were in the womb, the fetal hemoglobin. And that has protected sickle cell patients for um, protecting them against certain conditions that, that was life-threatening in the past. Yeah. And also people are doing bone marrow transplants on a few of them these days. That's not very common, quite frankly. But they are surviving now much longer. Most previous sicklers used to die in their teens and 20s. Mm-hmm. You rarely would find sicklers in their 30s going around. Nowadays we have them in their 40s and we even have a few in their 50s. Yes, yes. So their survival is much better because we have a better handle on the immunizations. We have a better handle on pain control. We have better antibiotics, and we know how to do the blood transfusions now, even though we don't like to expose them to too much blood because what you do when you give them blood is that the breakdown of the blood gives them iron, gives them iron and iron gets deposited in the tissue. You should never give a sickle cell patient iron because they are already iron overloaded. Iron gets deposited in the heart, the pancreas, the liver, and they can die from heart failure and liver failure when they're iron overloaded. So the transfusion is a a must in many of them, but at the same time we have that problem with the iron. And they're trying to do more bone marrow transplants in them now, which is a cure if they get through the transplant, but there is some mortality associated with the transplant, so... I think close to maybe 10% of them may die from the complications of the transplant. So you should never take that lightly, even though it is out there. They actually do that at Hackensack. Okay. Rose, so, can, can I jump in there for a question real quick? Um, yes. Dr. Brian, because that's a question I was waiting to ask. was Because um, we were talking about pain management, but you, you, you delve a little bit into new approaches in terms of maybe looking for a cure, looking for other ways of dealing with, with, with the disease. And as you talk about the bone marrow transplant, um, is there like a, an ideal age? So if a parent has a sickler and, and there's, a, there's somebody willing to do a bone marrow transplant, should they do it as 
teenagers as toddlers is there an ideal age or, or, or anything like that i think they want people who patients who are i think they're looking from about six to ten okay so they're for young children who haven't been exposed to too many blood products because once you expose them to blood products and they generally will need transfusions even at an early age is that you're exposing them to what we call antigens, which are proteins on these blood cells. And then what their bodies do is form what we call antibodies because your body is made for you. So if you get exposed, just like if you get exposed to a bacteria, you start making what we call antibodies to that bacteria to attack the bacteria. Similarly, when we give them blood, they start forming antibodies to those blood cells there, and they can form antibodies. And then eventually, when they get multiple transfusions and multiple exposures to various antibodies, then you have a hard time getting them to get blood transfusion. And with these transplants, you need transfusion support always. So it's difficult, even in our, some of our sicklers, we have a hard time finding cross-match blood, in other words, blood in our blood bank to give them because they have been exposed to so many different blood products that they have a lot of antibodies in their blood circulating that is attacking the cells as fast as we give it to them. So you really want a child that has not been exposed to too many transfusions or have any other complications from the sickle cell disease because remember sickle cell is the sickle cells are circulating throughout the whole body so if you have a child who had a stroke already the chances are you don't really want to do a transplant on that child when you do a transplant you really have to have dedicated patient and family support so that they can follow all of the instructions so you want, and you don't want somebody because sickle cell damages the kidneys. A lot of these patients eventually get kidney failure also if they live long enough. So you want a patient who is healthy otherwise besides the sickle cell and with good organ function because once they're living, surviving, then the, the organs are being damaged by these sickle cells, which is causing the blockage to the circulation. For example, in patients with SS disease, most of the time, what has happened to their spleen, which is a spleen is an organ in the body that helps us to fight infection, is that the spleen dies. That is one of the reasons why they are so at risk for infections, because the spleen dies because the sickle cells clog up the circulation in the spleen, and we say the spleen auto-infarcts. Infarction is the tissue dies. So the body itself infarcts the spleen, and then they have a non-functioning spleen. So they get all kinds of organisms that way. So the other organs are being damaged once the sickling process is going on in these patients. So you want to catch them at a fairly early age so that they can get the transplant and survive with functioning organs. Very good. So Dr. Brian, I did mention that um, this would be a uh, show on its own or another conversation, but I just have to touch on research as far as sickle cell goes. And for the, at this moment, I'd like to talk about stem cell and sickle cell anemia. What, what are they saying about stem cells related to sickle cell and helping out sickle cell disease? Well, basically, the 
cell is the same um, bone marrow cells that we're using, you know, because you remember the blood cells are being made in the bone marrow. Mm -hmm. So what people are doing, generally we used to do bone marrow transplants years ago where they actually took the cells from the bone marrow. Yes. But nowadays what they do, because, I mean, doing a bone marrow procedure can be painful and to draw all of that bone marrow stem cell give to a, a, a patient can be a, a, a little bit of a, a job there. So what these um, researchers are doing these days is peripheral. In other words, the, not the bone marrow itself, but the circulating blood. They can harvest stem cells from that. What they do is give us what is called growth factors, give the patients growth factors. So these are injections that they give, something like Neupogen, they give injections to stimulate bone marrow to push out the earlier cells, young cells. So the stem cells come out into the circulating blood, and then they put the patient, put a catheter in the patient and hook the patient up to a, what we call a phoresis machine. So they put them on the machine, they pull off their blood, and they remove some particular cell, they separate out the layers of cells, the red cells separate out from the white cells, from the platelets and so forth. And one particular layer that they determine has stem cells in there and they pull off that layer and they give the patient back the rest of their blood and plasma. And then they freeze those stem cells and then they, uh, after they knock out the bone marrow of the sickle cell patient now, then they can inject these stem cells into the blood and the stem cells actually find their way to the bone marrow to start growing. So that is basically how they're doing these transplants these days. Many years ago, we used to have to put needles in the back of the hip all around and pull bone marrow, pull bone marrow, which was very painful and you did that under anesthesia and stuff like that. But nowadays, it's much easier when they do from the circulating blood. They call that peripheral blood, stem cell harvesting. Okay. So it's, it's, it's a, an easier way to manage it these days, but it's still not um, a well accepted because people are scared, you know, when you know that your child may die from this procedure mm -hmm. and so forth. It, it's, it's, a, it's a very um, difficult situation for you to go into knowing the risks associated with it. Understood, understood. So on this note, are there any ways the community can help um, a sickle cell foundation? You know, any, do you know of any off the top of your head that they could start supporting financially or in any manner that they require? Well, because there's, we, because there is we a more, Sorry, we need to be doing some self-help. And, you know, there's a lot of things for AIDS. There's a lot of help for breast cancer and um, the ice bucket challenge and all this. There's a lot of stuff going on. But we, we need to also embrace our cause as much as possible. What do you suggest and what do you know is out there that we can be doing? Like Tony always says, what can we do now? Well, there's a lady I know who started an organization in New Jersey here. It's um, Sickle Cell Association of New Jersey, SCAN NJ. And she's very, very, she's somewhere down in Newark there. I mean, if you want Roslyn, I can give you her connection because she keeps emailing me. She has programs for these sicklers all the time. But blood donation is very helpful, you know. 
Okay. And also, you could get tested to see if you are a candidate for um, stem cell stem cell donation. Okay, very good. Very yeah, good. so those things are out there available to help. But blood is a real crucial thing that we need because these are more the majority of these patients that we have are black, yeah. and um, our bloods are more likely to match their blood because they're black, and I'm telling you, every situation you come across in these seculars here, they need blood transfusion. They're getting blood transfusion. I have one patient I saw today. He gets about 15 transfusions per year. Wow. Yeah. I have another one who gets about 24 transfusions per year. So they are the seculars are out there needing blood transfusions all the time. So, uh, and what we prefer to do, for example, in the sicklers who have a stroke, what we prefer to do on them is an exchange transfusion, which is something I should mention to you, which is um, where we actually put them up on this machine also, this pharesis machine, and you take off their blood and give them healthy blood. So because if we just keep giving them blood, we're going to overload them with iron very soon. And remember what I said, the complications of iron overload. So if we take off some of their blood and give them healthy blood, that is what is called an exchange transfusion. Of course, you take it off slowly, like one unit at a time, and give them a unit. You don't, can't take off all their blood at one time. But that is how we manage sickle cell patients who have had strokes also, and that has shown to prevent recurrence of strokes because they do get more strokes. And there's an, a condition in sickle cell anemia called acute chest syndrome where the sickle cells go and block up all the blood vessels in the lungs and they can't breathe. They end up on the breathing machine. And this is how many of the adult sicklers die from acute chest syndrome. And in that situation also, the recommendation is for them to have exchange transfusion also. So you take away their sickle blood and you're trying to give them healthy AA blood. Another condition where we need to give them do exchange transfusion, sometimes it's patients who have leg ulcers that are getting worse over the years, sometimes we do exchange transfusion. Another condition where we do exchange transfusion in these patients is a condition called priapism. I don't know if you ever, anybody ever heard of the god of priapus. Anyway, this is where you have young boys with sickle cell anemia. It happens in adults also. They get a painful erection of the penis, and it stays there. It can be there for hours and days and days, and it's extremely painful because of sickling in the blood vessels in the penis. It's called priapism. And many of them become impotent after that if it is not treated properly. And sometimes even with the treatment, you have to get them to the emergency room and they flush out the blood vessels in the penis and stuff like that. And this, the urologist may do some surgery to relieve the pressure there and stuff like that. But sometimes we have to do exchange transfusion in these patients also. So there are a number of areas where blood transfusion is going to help, and that is one of the reasons why they survive longer now also is because of transfusion support. So that is very, very important with Zizikler. So whoever can should go out there and try to donate some blood. And the, the National Institute of Health is always looking for um, 
for ways to help um, patients with sickle cell disease. And they're doing studies all the time because I think it is becoming more and more important because it really is a shame that this is the first disease that we know the genetic and the molecular defect and we still haven't gotten any further with it. And this was known since 1956. So I think more and more people are becoming more involved with sickle cell care and trying to take care of these patients and to get to the root of the problem. A few years ago, we were involved in a study with sickle cell patients where we were trying this kind of an oily substance to try to see if we could get the blood cells to be less sticky. But the problem was that um, the patients, they were needed to be within in the hospital within four hours. I think it was like four hours of the crisis starting. And if you know what, the most of the sicklers are black, as I said. They live in the, in the <coughs> cities. And if you know what the emergency rooms are like in these inner cities, you know that you, the chances of you getting somebody in within four hours in a hospital bed to start them on this drug, it's next to impossible. By the time you get them to the emergency room, through the emergency room, to get all of this set up. So the, the, the study, even though I believe it was a good drug that may have benefited these patients, this study just didn't pan out because everybody was coming just so late, you know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, trials are out there, but it's just that it's a tough population to deal with. A lot of these sicklers, like I said, their brains are really not functioning well, so they really cannot, they do not have the ability to cooperate and to have clinical trials going. You really need somebody who is very cooperative, and Roz, as you know, the sicklers we have, they are not very compliant, the majority of them. So it's it's a tough population to deal with and to get things going. It's it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. So it's gonna take effort, an effort on everybody's part to to come up with um better solutions to the problems we have with these sickle cell patients. But they are living longer. They are having babies. So we're gonna see more and more of them around. So in an, so at the end of the day, I see progress. A lot of a lot of work to do, but there's a lot of progress thus far from the days when I used to take care of the sickle cell crisis patients. And um, I'm glad that we have this information to give to the listeners. Um, and the main thing they need to take from this, one of the main things, you can do something and you can do it tomorrow. You can donate blood. Let me just mention a couple of the other complications. They're always anemic. The problem with the sickle cell patients is that their blood, because it is jamming up the blood vessels, these blood cells break down. So they are anemic. They're anemic. They are tired all the time. Mm -hmm. They have no energy. Their brains are not functioning well. They are anemic. So they, that's one of the reasons why they, they, most of them can't work, really. So they are dependent on society to take care of them. Because of the breakdown of these blood cells also, there's a buildup of the breakdown products of the blood cells, so they become jaundice. That's why you may see many sicklers out there with yellow eyes, they develop jaundice. Another problem is a breakdown product of the red blood cell is, um, is they, they form these salts which form gallstones. So a lot of the sickle cell patients will have their gallbladder out 
by the time they get 20 or 30, they have surgery because they have gallstones all the time. Remember, in sickle cell patients, you know, normally, in the normal person with the AA hemoglobin, the red blood cell survives for 120 days before it dies. In a sickle cell patient, the survival of the red blood cell is only 20 days. So they are destroying their red cells as fast as they are making them. Their bone marrow is working as hard as possible, but they can't maintain a hemoglobin above 8 grams most of the time. Normal people have, females have a hemoglobin of 12. Males may have 14 to 16 or so. So most of the cichlids we have, their hemoglobin runs between like 7 and 8 grams. So they are constantly fatigued and tired and unable to concentrate. So they have these additional problems that they're dealing with there also. So it's, it's a major problem, and we all need to get our heads together to try to deal with it. Yes, yes. It's definitely, it should be a household name, even if we all know somebody who has a trait or who has the disease, and now that we've listened to this program, we need to go out there and just help our community as much as we can. Yes, totally agree. And we should get on the Internet also and educate ourselves a little more and read up some more about and see what you can do to help patients with sickle cell anemia. Absolutely. Anthony? Yeah, well, certainly. And um, I'm, I'm looking at the time, and it's, it's past, um, it's almost 10 past 9. Our producers uh, give us some grace time. Uh, and this is very valuable information. And, and I really like the way that we've said that what you can do is you can give blood. Also, if you know somebody who is a sickler, talk to them. See what support you can give them. Encourage them to... To, to manage their health, to, to seek medical, to be more compliant. We hear good doctors say that a lot of the patients are, are not compliant. Maybe they're feeling that, oh boy, I'm always complaining, there's always something wrong with me. And so they, they probably try to to keep, take it out of their minds. But, but encourage them, um, let them know that you're there to support them. And, and, and Dr. Brian, I think you've given us so much valuable information because sickle cell anemia is is not a disease that we hear so much about and 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 the the importance of screening i i think it sounds like everybody should know whether or not they they carry the trait or not and yes especially persons who are thinking of having of having children you should know yes. if, if you have the trait or not so i think maybe the screening part of it maybe needs we could emphasize that a little bit more um, but very valuable information. Thank you. So, so, so Roz, uh, we didn't get a chance to, to talk on oncology because sickle cell. I I am amazed at the, at, <laughs> <laughs> I'm amazed yeah, at the I'm number of conditions and, and how severe they are. Um, so so certainly, um, we definitely would love to have Dr. Brian back and maybe to do oncology next time. But Rod, I'm going to hand it to you to, to take it to the, um, to the end of the, of the program. Yes. Well, Dr. Brian, thank you so much. Um, I've learned a lot about sickle cell tonight. I knew a lot, but um, you've given me some new information tonight. It was very, very um, thought-provoking. Um, eye-opener, 
And I'm saying that for the listeners, I'm sure it's been an, a lot of thought-provoking and eye-opener for our listeners. And I'm really imploring on the um, listeners, be empathetic and sympathetic to people with sickle cell. They might be walking with a cane. Some of them walk around with their oxygen. Give that person a ride to the doctor's office. Help the parents. Give the parents a break. And, you know, just avail yourself. We need to do more of that. Seek out people who need help. Like Dr. Brian says, go on the website. We can Google anything and everything. So please Google sickle cell, the institutions, how you can help, who you can help. And um, I think that's what I'd like our listeners to take out to go home with tonight or to ponder over. And Dr. Brian, thanks a million for your time and your expertise and your wealth of knowledge. Um, it's been really, really a pleasure and uh, a lot of food for thought tonight. And I hope that we can um, arrange to speak on oncology at a later date. Yes, let me know. I'm, 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 I'm more involved in oncology than sickle cell, actually. So. <laughs> so, so, Anthony, we need two hours for oncology, okay? <laughs> no, definitely. I, am, I, I listened to Dr. Brian said that... Um, Sickle cell is her secondary um, area of focus, and she is so informative uh, and in, and in touch with with everything on sickle cell. I I am anticipating um, when we will have her back to talk about her main area of practice, which is oncology. Um, so yeah. so Rosalind, I sure our listeners are going to depend on you to um, to organize that very shortly. But Dr. Brian, let me just say. Um, on behalf of the listeners, uh, thank you so much for sharing so willingly your information and your time. And um, we really appreciate you accepting um, to be on the show tonight. Thank you very, very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Brian. Thank you and good night. Good night. Good night. Listeners, again, thank you for joining us and we'll be back. Well, well, before you go, Ros, let me just say thank you so much. And as usual, every every month you manage to fascinate us with um, the experts that you bring on the show and the information that you share. Uh, so we, we thank you so much. And really, um, I think our, our audience if would definitely benefit from from the show. I, as a matter of fact, some one of the listeners sent me a message say that um, they lost a friend to sickle, to sickle cell anemia and um, the program just brought them back to that place. Um, so I guess it was a sad moment, but, but they're happy that we are able to share that type of information with the audience. So Rosalind, thank you so much for, for what you do for, for the audience. We really, really appreciate your professionalism and expertise. The pleasure is all mine. I look forward to doing the show once a Wednesday every month. And um, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Good night. Good night. Well, listeners, <laughs> I'm sure you will agree with me that tonight's show was um, very tremendous, very eye-opener. I, I mean, sickle cell anemia was something that I heard about in the fringes. You know, of my knowledge, I knew nothing about it. I must say I'm guilty. So, a takeaway tonight is to, if you're not familiar with sickle cell anemia, please educate yourself. We've got a wealth of information. But not only that, um, one of the basic things we can do is to give blood. And um, we, I found out about 
September being sickle cell anemia month um, from a flyer I got from the National Urban League. So you can probably go on their website and get more information on what is what is what you can do to help um, alleviate and to help make progress on the treatment of sickle cell anemia. I I want to thank you one more time for staying with us through the hour and for tuning in every Wednesday night uh, at this time, 8 p.m. for this week in interview. We really appreciate you coming back and we try to keep it interesting and to keep you informed. I'd like to say thank you to my um, producer and engineer, Sam. He's always on top of the ball, very professional, and we appreciate um, your efforts very much. So, once again, I want to say thank you for tuning in. And um, this has been our show this week in interview.